Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, check your Easy Pass bill. Starting today, you'll be paying a little more on the Turnpike and the Parkway, but there's even more coming for commuters heading into Midtown Manhattan. The congestion pricing public hearings have begun. For many of us who are struggling to make ends meet, an additional daily fee will represent a substantial burden that will force sacrifices in other areas such as food. Plus, reducing violence. Nearly a year after the tragic death of Nashi Seabrooks in Patterson, community intervention groups in Trenton are expanding efforts to curb a rise in violence. Also, powering NJ. Governor Murphy touting two offshore wind projects that expect to create over 4,000 jobs here. Offshore wind represents the biggest opportunity probably for New Jersey for our economic future, but surely for South Jersey. And breaking news, New Jersey businessman Jose Uribe pleads guilty in the sweeping federal bribery case against U.S. Senator Bob Menendez. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venosi. Just in time for the weekend, drivers who use the Turnpike and Garden State Parkway saw their tolls go up today by 3%. That's the third price increase in three years, and it means the average toll for the joy of riding on the New Jersey Turnpike for a passenger vehicle, well, it's now over five bucks. That's an increase of 15 cents. According to a state transportation official, the average Parkway commuter will pay an extra five cents on their trip. It's not going to break the bank, but drivers say all the increases add up, especially as New Jersey pushes back against another looming fee on commuters who drive into Midtown Manhattan. New York City's transit agency, the MTA, this week held the first two out of four public hearings on the proposed congestion pricing plan. And as senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, commuters on both sides of the issue were ready to sound off. I had to buy one because if you think transit sucks in New York, move to Jersey. Dana Dennis testified during the MTA's four-hour-long public hearing on congestion pricing. Speakers from the five boroughs and New Jersey weighed in. Dennis just moved to Essex County and supports the plan as a way not just to reduce traffic and pollution, but also to improve mass transit for folks who depend on it. If you have waited long wait times at a bus stop, it's for you. If you had to get up extra early and you were still delayed to get to work, congestion pricing is for you. For many of us who are struggling to make ends meet, an additional daily fee will represent a substantial burden that will force sacrifices in other areas such as food. Many speakers expressed similar concerns over the toll that congestion pricing will take on their wallets. It'll charge $15 for cars and up to 36 bucks for trucks heading south of 60th Street and entering from bridges and tunnels in to Manhattan's congestion pricing zone during the day. One paramedic complained working folks can't afford it. Because all these people don't live in the city because it's way too expensive, so we import them and now they're not going to work here because we're taxing them outrageously. It's the cops, 
the firemen, myself, a paramedic, myself, the construction workers. I'm not going to work down here. Are you kidding me? You might not like what I'm saying, but it's a fact. You are BSing New Yorkers. The, the MTA is a money pit. It's asking people to pay for something that's free right now. Um, and so it's going to be controversial. But what we've seen in other cities is that once the fees put in place, people see the benefits um, and public support goes up. The MTA's already built congestion pricing scanners and says the system could launch this June. But it's worried about some half dozen or so lawsuits filed by groups including Governor Murphy, North Jersey politicians, New York small businesses, and workers' unions. MTA officials claim that's stifling their spending plans. This is why it is all the more concerning that we need to share with the board the impacts of the delays in congestion pricing due to the current litigation. The agency's capital projects plan relies on billions of dollars from congestion pricing tolls. This week, the MTA hit the brakes. With any lawsuit or lawsuits comes risk, especially of delay, and we can't award contracts until the funding is assured. So as a result, the MTA capital program must be placed mostly on hold. While litigation is pending, we will not be issuing any new construction contract solicitations. And the idea that they want to blame any of this on anyone but themselves is offensive. Congressman Josh Gottheimer is among New Jersey officials who sued the MTA, claiming congestion pricing will simply shift traffic and pollution away from Manhattan. You may have less traffic, but you're totally hosing people in their own outer boroughs and in northern New Jersey. They're being sued by businesses in New York, by families in the boroughs, by families in northern New Jersey, right? He urged the MTA to improve its financial management. The legal roadblock remains leverage in this bi-state debate. The MTA will hold two more public hearings on Monday and a final vote on congestion pricing in spring. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. And Raven Santana continues the conversation around congestion pricing on NJ Business Beat this weekend. She digs deeper into how New York's plan will impact New Jersey's business community, from small businesses to the trucking industry. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. on NJPBS. Also breaking news tonight, a key figure in the sweeping bribery case against U.S. Senator Bob Menendez has pleaded guilty. North Jersey businessman Jose Uribe pleaded guilty in a Manhattan court today to seven counts, including conspiracy to commit bribery, honest services wire fraud, tax evasion, and obstruction of justice. Uribe is a former insurance broker who lost his license for fraud. Today, he admitted to prosecutors' allegations he bought a Mercedes-Benz for Senator Menendez's wife, quote, with the intent to influence an official act. Specifically, the Senate help in disrupting a state investigation into Uribe and his associates. Menendez has been charged with accepting bribes, including the car, cash and gold bars, in exchange for lucrative political favors. Menendez, his wife and the rest of the co-defendants have pleaded not guilty. A judge set Mr. Uribe's sentencing date for June 14th, just after the U.S. Senate primary. 
The role of community-based public safety is taking on greater importance throughout a lot of communities in New Jersey, especially in the wake of police-involved fatal shootings. Today, a group known as the New Jersey Violence Intervention and Prevention Statewide Coalition joined with leaders in Trenton to take a harder look at how the model, which removes law enforcement from responding to certain crises, is working as cities work to combat crime. Melissa Rose Cooper has the story. When you ensure the safety and the wellness of our communities, you ensure the safety and the wellness of all New Jersey communities. Members of the New Jersey Violence Intervention and Prevention Statewide Coalition applauding community-based organizations for their work in helping to reduce crime across the state. These are highly skilled members of the community responding oftentimes to highly charged and incredibly sensitive situations armed with nothing more than their expertise, their emotional aptitude, contextual understanding, and above all else, their humanity, which allows them to de-escalate situations that honors the work and the lives of all the individuals involved. Their work has contributed to the 45% reduction in homicides in the city of Trenton. Their work has contributed to North seeing a 50-year low in violence with a 15% reduction in homicide victims and a number of shooting victims that fell more than a third in 2022. Thank you. Their work has caused violence in Patterson to drop by 35%. Murders down 39% and shooting victims down 25% compared to 2022. This comes nearly a year after violence intervention activist Najee Seabrooks was shot and killed by Patterson police during a mental health crisis. I'd be lying if I, I said that I, this wasn't a bittersweet moment for us. It's been a very tough year for our team and uh, we're still working through it. Um, but with your support, you know, we've been able to persevere and uh, I, I assume I, I can take this with a grain of salt that it's a silver lining. State lawmakers have since passed legislation aimed at helping communities respond to crisis incidents. It's named after Seabrooks and Andrew Washington, who were both killed by police during mental health calls. We've heard about the success of the bills, why we have these bills. The brothers who lost their, lost their lives to get us to this point. Yes. That shouldn't have had to happen. Drew Washington and Najee Seabrooks. Like, we need to say their names, right? Yes. Najee Seabrooks and Drew Washington. Like, they lost their lives, so somebody else doesn't have to. So our communities can step in and fill that gap that we know wasn't filled before. But while community leaders say they're grateful for state support, they say it's the work of the people on the ground that really make the impact when it comes to crime reduction. And it's amazing when you realize that that coincides also when we started to actually receive the funding. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're one of those organizations that have been in place for, you know, almost 10 years. But when we actually were able to, to get the funding, you can actually start to see the results. Not that we're not occupying corners, not that we're not in the schools talking to the youth, not that we're not doing everything that we can do, but when we're able to actually put some kind of money towards programming to get these kids in the places that they need to be, to make sure that these adults, you know what I mean, have the resources to, you know, um, violence prevention, you know, techniques and things like that, then we can see change. While we've experienced some strides in the state, we still got a ways to go. But we're not unreasonable people, right? We believe in giving credit where it's due. We commend the administration and the legislature for their leadership in ensuring that the uh, investments have been made into violence interruption programs throughout the state. But let's be clear, this wasn't done because of altruism, right? This was done because they understand what we all understand. 
And that's because they understand that these programs work. Social advocates also say they hope funding for community violence prevention programs becomes permanent in the budget so they can continue to do the work that's necessary to keep their neighborhoods safe. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. Big changes are coming to veterans' health care starting this month. In what's being called the largest ever expansion, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will allow any veteran exposed to toxins and other hazards during military service to be eligible for VA health care without first having to apply for VA benefits. That's whether they served at home or abroad. The expansion takes effect on March 5th, which the VA says is years earlier than originally called for in the past. Act. For the latest details, I'm joined by Dr. Sharif Elnahal. He's New Jersey's former health commissioner and currently the Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Well, Mr. Undersecretary, it is excellent to have you on the show. It's been a while uh, since you were the commissioner here of health in New Jersey. Uh, tackling uh, big challenges there, what are the changes uh, in how veterans are now going to be able to access this type of health care. So we're really excited about this, Brianna, because we're talking about the largest health care eligibility expansion in VA history. Literally millions of additional veterans will qualify for direct enrollment into VA health care as of Tuesday, March 5th, including any veteran deployed to serve in the Gulf War, any post 9-11 veteran deployed to any of the areas of conflict in the global war on terror to include Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, New Dawn, and more, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the entirety of Central Command. On top of that, any veteran who was exposed to a toxin during their service, regardless of whether they were deployed, is also eligible to enroll for VA healthcare. And that includes toxins that we know about, like burn pits, Agent Orange, contaminated water at Camp Lejeune, but also other types of substances like jet fuel, uh, nuclear materials, and otherwise that veterans could have been exposed to during their service right here domestically. And so that again amounts to an additional uh, millions of veterans who may be able to qualify for VA health care. And we encourage you to apply as of Tuesday, March 5th. Do you have a sense of how many veterans in New Jersey will now be part of this, this new pool? We anticipate that tens of thousands of additional veterans in states like New Jersey uh, will qualify, and we won't know until we get that demand signal as of Tuesday. So this ends, of course, the phasing in of folks, which was how this was initially set out. Does it change the process that your department is using to determine if, in fact, these are folks who participated in these activities that put them at risk? Yes to both. So originally the law called for a phase in approach every two years for veterans deployed to specific locations within central command at specific times. But the president saw that we enrolled more than half a million veterans into healthcare just in the first year and a half after he signed the legislation. And we wanted to make that many more veterans qualified and eligible to enroll in VA healthcare. And so what that means is when they apply, they don't they no longer have to prove that they even had an exposure. If they're a post 9-11 vet deployed to Central Command or a Gulf War vet deployed to the Middle East or a Vietnam vet, this is a benefit that's been in place since the fall of 22, no longer have to prove an exposure or even a condition associated with that exposure. 
and that's a direct opportunity to enroll in VA healthcare. Is there any priority given to folks who are, say, more senior? You know, they have been veterans for quite a while. They were unaware that they could access these benefits. How will you prioritize the folks who will now be applying? Well, the good news is the application turnaround time for healthcare in the VA is quite fast. It's between three to six days before you get an answer. And so uh, we, of course, uh, take in applications as they come. If you apply for Veterans Benefits Administration benefits, we prioritize based on the urgency of the condition that you might have, et cetera. But we really do have a fast turnaround for a lot of these healthcare applications. And so that's why we're encouraging all of the veterans who are originally going to be phased in over the next 10 years to apply as of Tuesday, March 5th. Dr. Sharif Elnahal is the Undersecretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Good to see you. Good to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thanks again. In our Spotlight on Business report, it's all about the jobs when it comes to New Jersey's budding offshore wind industry. At an event in South Jersey today, members of Governor Murphy's administration met with the winners of two new offshore wind projects to share details of their plans with the public and show off the kind of skilled jobs it'll generate. Ted Goldberg reports. The EAS Commercial Dive Center has already produced 12 full-time divers, just in time to help create New Jersey's offshore wind farms. We opened this facility a little over two years ago, knowing that the growing offshore wind industry would require a skilled and highly trained workforce. William Spruill works for the EAS Carpenters Union and says this facility is the only American dive school owned and operated by a union. It's also the only training facility in the country to earn global offshore certifications. Spruill welcomed state leaders today to tout the next generation of energy employees helping offshore wind get off the ground. The commercial dive school is ahead of its time. With these accreditations, with the state-of-the-art training facility, and the superior commercial dive instructors, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, has proven its commitment to preparing our professional tradesmen and women for the construction of offshore wind. This portfolio of projects collectively represent what offshore wind offers. Clean energy that will yield environmental benefits for generations to come, economic benefits to boost New Jersey's economy for decades, and thousands of good-paying, family-sustaining jobs. At the end of the day, this is about jobs. This is about jobs here at facilities like this and for, and for, for members of the building and construction trades. It's about jobs in Paulsboro at EW that are going to be making monopiles. It's about jobs in Lower Alloys Creek in Salem County where we're going to make towers. The divers trained here will be hired by projects like Attentive Energy, which recently won a bid to build offshore wind farms off of New Jersey's shoreline. With a 1.34 gigawatt project um, and potentially power of 650,000 homes, um, these aren't small numbers, right? These are, these are game changers. While there may be challenges along the way, this is New Jersey, and we don't back down from a challenge. Challenges like Orsted bailing on a project last Halloween. Leaders remain optimistic that the state will meet clean energy goals set by Governor Murphy. Offshore wind represents the biggest opportunity probably for New Jersey, for our economic future, but surely for South Jersey. There is no bigger economic opportunity that presents itself for thousands, if not tens of thousands of jobs and careers over the next 30, 50, 100 years. The training courses here are 16 weeks long and cost $20,000 if you're not an existing union member. 
But the starting salaries are pretty inviting. In New Jersey, once you wrap up training and finish up an apprenticeship, pile drivers start at $100,000 a year, with divers making more than that and playing a large role in New Jersey's energy future. In Sicklerville, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. On Wall Street, stocks are building on a record-setting rally following a blowout month. Here's how the markets closed for the week. They're abused and treated as subhuman. If they try to escape, they'll be killed without a trace. In a rare look inside the global seafood industry, North Korean workers sent to Chinese factories are sharing what life is like as part of a forced labor operation that's long been used in China at companies that run the gamut. Their stories are detailed by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Ian Urbina, who runs the journalism nonprofit The Outlaw Ocean Project, investigating crimes at sea. We first spoke with him in November about his work uncovering the human cost behind the seafood we eat, and he joins me now to share his latest investigation. Ian Urbina, uh, thanks for coming back on the show. Let me ask you first how these workers from North Korea end up in China in this labor program, this forced labor program? Yeah, so we're dealing with about 100,000 workers that are transferred in a relationship between the Chinese government and the North Korean government. It's a heavily regulated transfer. These are mostly women when it comes to the seafood industry that are being sent from North Korea to China. They apply for these jobs. They're pretty sought-after jobs um, because they pay better than what they could ever earn in North Korea, and they're transferred, you know, in this very regulated fashion, and then held at the facilities and not allowed to leave. The conditions, uh, as you wrote them, seem to be dire. How did they describe them to you? Yeah, they're, they're pretty dire. So we're dealing with um, normally. Before COVID, these women were stuck in these plants, which are sort of walled, patrolled compounds um, for two-year stints. Um, because of COVID, a lot of them got stuck for three and four years. They're not allowed to leave the plant. They're not allowed to listen to local TV or radio. They're not allowed to interact with any of the locals. When these women do leave the plant in rare occasion, they always have a minder with them uh, for outings. A large portion of their pay is confiscated by the government. And what was the most striking thing is that um, the women recounted um, 20 out of the 24 specifically recounted uh, sexual violence. When you and I first spoke, Ian, we talked about your piece looking at, uh, as you titled it, the crimes behind the seafood we eat, that much of the seafood that's ending up on our plates here in the U.S., in New Jersey, uh, is being uh, produced through either forced labor uh, at a high human cost. Is that the case here? Are these products there that are being imported to the U.S. And, and to New Jersey specifically, were you able to trace it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, in this day and age, in a globalized economy, everything comes by these long supply chains. Seafood is especially long and tangled and opaque. Um, we were able to connect 
the crimes to the consumers and including grocery stores and brands in New Jersey. Um, this means they're coming off of vessels, they're going into processing plants in China where these North Korean women are kept, then they're shipping them to the US and those are shipping to either restaurants or grocery stores, and in some cases, food service companies like Cisco that service, you know, military bases and the congressional cafeteria, sort of public institutions, were also getting seafood from the very same factories. And so then how are these abuses, these labor violations, able to fall through the cracks? There are many sanctions on using North uh, Korean labor and, and those products making it here. Uh, you spoke with our Congressman Chris Smith about it. Why is it that they're not working or, or not being enforced? You know, I think there's a reckoning that's happening right now for the global seafood industry. Um, you know, textile and electronics had their moment of reckoning before, which is to say that these are industries with many companies, including U.S. companies, that previously could sort of um, look the other way and uh, be comfortable with what they didn't know about their own supply chain, especially in places like China. I think seafood is now realizing they can no longer benefit from that willful ignorance and that they're going to have to know exactly what's happening in the factories that they're partnering with. Um, and that's hopefully what will happen next with this reporting. Ian Urbina is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He's the director of the journalism nonprofit, the Outlaw Ocean Project. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us, but make sure to tune into Reporters Roundtable this weekend. David Cruz talks with Michelle Sakurka, president and CEO of the New Jersey Business and Industry Association, to get the business community's reaction to the governor's budget proposal. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. Watch it Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10 on NJPBS. Then on Chatbox, David continues his budget analysis with a panel of transportation experts and policy analysts, breaking down the proposed corporate transit fee. That's Saturday night at 6.30 and Sunday morning at 10.30 right here on NJPBS. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. Enjoy the weekend. We'll be back here on Monday. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community.